Uh, would you join me uh, where we've been for quite a while? Uh, Matthew chapter 5, I believe this will be the 8th message that uh, we will have been in Matthew 5. I uh, thought this morning, it just occurred to me that I have never preached so much or will have preached so much in one chapter as what's going to happen in Matthew 5, and I don't know that there will be another chapter like that. Maybe there will be. Uh, you know, you think of Romans 8, when we were in that, we were there a while, uh, but not even there as many weeks as uh, we have already been in Matthew 5, just so much in these these first 12 verses. Um, we're in these things called the Beatitudes. Uh, we've looked at seven. So Jesus calls his disciples up to a mountain, and he begins to teach them. And there's lots of different ways people have described these, but these are really uh, how he kicks off the Sermon on the Mount is by these descriptions that I believe is of not only the ideal Christian that he's looking for, the ideal follower of Christ, but this is the expected progression. We'll come back to that thought in just a moment. But I'm not going to reread them all, but we'll re- we'll, we will allude to the other seven Beatitudes, these blessings and pronouncements of happiness that are placed upon the people who fit these descriptions in their life. So with that in mind, we've looked at seven. Here is the eighth one and kind of the culmination here. Verse 10. I hope you're ready. You're ready to study your Bible. Get your minds ready. Tune in. Even be praying throughout. God, show me what you want me to know out of this passage. Jesus said, blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he tells why. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's been doing this same formula. Here's this group, they are blessed, here's the blessing on those people. Verse 10 again, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That takes us back to the same blessing that was in verse 3. By the way, if you have your Bible open here, this will serve you better than if you're just following the screen. So Matthew 5 verse 11. He switches the tense. He switches who he's talking to he now goes to second person here kind of plural blessed are you so it's no longer those over there who fit this description he now turns it to his immediate audience of his followers his disciples in essence saying here's what's coming blessed are you when others revile you they're going to hate you they're going to insult you they're going to inflict things upon you Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. They're going to make stuff up. They're going to twist things. They're going to put it in the worst of light. They're going to frame it. They may take something that's factual and, again, put a little spin on it, only telling part of it. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account. Catch what he just did. Verse 10 again. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Verse 11. When they utter all kinds. You're blessed when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account. So there's for righteousness sake. And then there's on Christ's account. And then verse 12. Rejoice. And be glad. Why? Why? For your reward is great in heaven. That's what he says. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want to jump right into our first note. This is going to be a little different message. This is one that has spoke. Last week's message on being a peacemaker spoke to me. The Lord challenged me. I need to be more of a peacemaker. I need to step into people's lives more. Take the risk. Have the courage. Um... It may not always go where you think it's going to go, but be willing to do it. So many are not willing to do that. It's easy to sit on the sidelines hoping somebody will do it. So here's the thought this morning. These eight Beatitudes are the expected progression of all Christians. All Christians begin by realizing, in essence, 
Maybe not word for word, but you have a sort of a conversation with God. God, I have nothing to offer you spiritually. I am totally bankrupt. I don't even have anything. I am absolutely destitute. I am in deep, deep poverty when it comes to spiritual things. And they don't just acknowledge it. They mourn over it. In essence, asking God, I need Jesus' righteousness. I don't have any. And then that will lead. Here's the expected progression after you get saved is the third thing. And Lord, I'm going to surrender my life to you. God, I have my own agenda. I have my own desires. But I'm going to put myself under your hand. And I'm going to submit submission I have a mission but I'm gonna put my mission under your mission and then this emptiness inside Lord I'm not satisfied with it I want I want hunger I, I hunger and I thirst for righteousness I'm gonna die without it I'm gonna go after it and then that person gets satisfied literally they will start growing in righteousness as they're pursuing the Lord but be careful that your growth in righteousness does not let you start looking at others judgmentally you're very gracious and merciful to them, and you're even merciful to those who've offended and sinned against you because the mercy of the Lord is always before your eyes. I am nothing without you, and his mercy inspires, and his grace enables you to be merciful. And then something happens as you grow in the Christian life. You start getting this even more pure these other drives and appetites are laid to the wayside and you become consumed with one desire. And because you have this one desire of loving the Lord and magnifying Him and making Him famous around the world, all of a sudden you find yourself with this pure heart attacking sin because you hate sin. It, my life's not pure because this sin. I'll never get rid of it all, but I'm, I'm going. I'm making war on sin as I'm pursuing Christ above all else. And then the big one is it because of all of that, you find yourself stepping between warring parties where a conflict exists, you take the chance, you might get injured, and even more so when there's this conflict between God and sinful mankind, you put yourself like Christ in the midst of that trying to bring peace as a minister of reconciliation, and it may or may not go well, and the result of all of that is what? We're going to get an attaboy button right? You develop this godly life that steps into people's lives that have conflict, and they're going to say, thank you so much for your godly life and stepping into our life. That may happen. And you may get an attaboy button. You may get a, a pat on the back. But what Jesus says, what you can expect to happen, you stay that path long enough, you will be persecuted. What can these people, what can a person that's pursuing the Beatitudes in their life, what's to be expected persecution and so with that thought in mind three thoughts this morning I want us to cover number one I'm going to jump right into it number one the fact and the cause of persecution the fact and the cause of persecution I want you to track with me one of the things I notice is after Jesus gives this list it's a strange list it has these blessings attached to it he culminates with this thought blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake and on my account blessed persecution one thing that stood out to me as I read that this week is I noticed Jesus does not sugarcoat his message and neither does he apologize Jesus doesn't sugarcoat we use that phrase I thought about that after I typed it in I'm like Jeff what do you even mean by this when you sugarcoat something you know that there's a bitterness to it and so you kind of need to sugarcoat it when our little dog gets sick you have to like put his little medicine in cheese or some kind. They even sell these pill packets. Somebody got real smart, and they know that the smart dogs eat around the pill, and they leave the pill in the dish, so you got to kind of tuck it in something, and they'll gulp it down real quick. So you got to sugarcoat because they don't like the medicine. Listen to me. Satan never shows you the bitter part. He always shows you the sweet part, but once you get past that veneer, it always ends up bitter and deathly. Christ says there's all these blessings, but he acknowledges right out of the gate. Now, there's going to be this veneer of bitterness. You may and probably will suffer persecution. He doesn't sugarcoat, but also this stuck out to me. He's, he's not apologizing. Hey, by the way, if you follow me, you might get persecuted. I'm sorry. He doesn't say he's sorry. Doesn't sugarcoat. Doesn't apologize. He says expect it. Why? Expect. 
If you're growing in your walk with the Lord, and as you grow closer to the Lord, expect to be insulted, expect to be afflicted, expect to be persecuted. Why? Mark it down. Unbelievers, they may know it, and they may do it intentionally. They may not even know why, but unbelievers hate the light of Christ that is in us as followers of Christ. The more you start exuding and, 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 and just showing the life of Christ in you, unbelievers hate that, and they will speak against you, and they will persecute you, and they will afflict you. So in other words, when this starts happening, like I'm living for the Lord and it seems like more and more is happening and why does that person or why does that group not like me? What am I doing wrong? No, you're not doing something wrong. You're doing something right. And Jesus mentions two types, two categories, as it were, of persecution. I want us to look at, this will be the bulk, this will be the main part. Our time-wise, we're going to spend most of our time in the first point a little less time in the second, and then a good bit less time in the third. Notice two things with me this morning. Number one, verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So persecuted for righteousness' sake. If you have your Bible, go with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, I want you to see one verse there, and then we're going to go over to 1 Peter, and you're going to want to leave a marker in 1 Peter because that's where the remainder of the verses. Uh, the other three passages will come from today. Second Peter chapter 3, a classic passage. And so here's Peter, this, I'm sorry, here's Paul in 2 Timothy. This is the last of the 13 books that we know he wrote in the New Testament. This time he's in prison and he's writing, I believe, to his favorite person in the world, his favorite human being, is his young protege, young Timothy. And I think this is not only a book of exhortation, I believe 2 Timothy is a kick in the pants toward Timothy because Timothy apparently was wavering. And I'm not going to back up and read verses 10 and 11. But what Paul is saying, Timothy, you've been following me. You know what's been the aim of my life. You know what's been my passion. You've heard all my teaching. You've seen how I've continued and persevered, and I've had patient endurance. You followed all of that, and yes, you know that I'm in prison now. Don't you be discouraged by that. You keep going. In fact, Timothy, I don't want you to think that what's happened to me is unusual. Verse 12, you see it on the screen. Look at it. Paul says, indeed, it's so much like Matthew 5, indeed, This actually steps it up. All who desire to live a godly life, you say, I want to live a godly life. I'm hungry and thirsting for righteousness. Paul says, don't think it's unusual. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you live a godly life, the Beatitudes are coming more and more. You will be persecuted. You say, Jeff, right now I'm I'm living for the Lord more than I ever have. I'm not really being persecuted. Keep listening to today's message. I told you we'd be in 1 Peter. If you would, go to 1 Peter chapter number 3, and you want to leave a marker there. 1 Peter chapter 3. Again, I'm not going to back up and read all the passage before this, but here's what's happening. Peter is saying, in essence, he's quoting from another passage of, of Scripture, the Old Testament. He's saying, what if this is your thought? You're like, Jeff, I want to love life. I want to like enjoy life. I want to have a good life. So this passage that we're looking at today is not really my favorite. I want to love life. I want to see good days. Well, right above what we're about to read, Peter is going to give some great advice. It's fourfold. Here's here's the gist of it. Well, watch your mouth. You want to love life? You want to see good days? Watch your mouth. Be careful with your words. Secondly, he says, when evil comes, run away from it. I want a good life. Watch your mouth. Run away from evil. And here's the third thing. Do good things. So don't just run from evil, but positively do good things. And then the fourth thing was peace, peace, harmony. Seek it. Pursue it. If we do those things, we'll have a good life, right? Verse 13. Peter says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? You're like, yeah, exactly. If we live a good life, have these beatitudes in our life, we're running away from evil, we're careful with our words, we're not offensive to people, we're not telling lies, and we're not slandering and gossiping, we're, we're, we're doing good things, and we're really pursuing peace, and everybody's going to really like us and love us. There's a principle, verse number 13. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? By and large, most of the time, you're right, you'll have a good life. But then he says, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. So yes, 
More times than not, you're zealous for good. People aren't going to harm you. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He was there. He heard this in Matthew 5. Peter is now repeating it. If you do the things that are mentioned in the verses before, you may still end up suffering for righteousness' sake, but you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled on the inside, tore up. It's okay. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Let that be a constant. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Why do you keep doing that? You know that it results in that. Why do you keep on? Why do you guys do that? Why do you do away with these things and you bring this? Why do you keep inviting this into your life? What's wrong with you people? Be ready to tell them why we do what we do. And then verse number 15 concludes by saying, but when you do that, when you give a defense, when you give that answer, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So keep a clean conscience so that when you are slandered, they're talking about you behind your back. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And then he gives this strange conclusion. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. And you're like, that would never be God's will for people to suffer for doing good. Oh, yes, it is. Because verse 18 says Christ suffered. He always did good. Verse 17 again. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. By the way, suffering for doing evil is called punishment. Suffering for doing good is called persecution. Today we're talking about persecution. Chapter 4, look at verse number 3. We're talking about suffering, being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Chapter 4, verse 3. Peter says, for the time that is past, you've already lived it. That suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You know what he's saying? Hey, you remember your formal life, living for yourself, living in sin? Okay, that's enough of that. Don't do that anymore. You know like what? For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. Hey, I like looking at it. I'm going to look at it. I like the way that sounds. I'm going to listen to it. I think it's funny. Or uh, it challenges me. Or it, it's like the way it makes me feel. I, I want to put that in my body. I'm going to put that in my body. I like what it does to me. I like to smell that, I'm going to smell that. I want to go over there, I'm going to go over there. That's what the Gentiles do. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Peter's saying, enough of that, you had enough of that. Verse 4, with respect to this, they, the Gentiles represents unsaved people who don't know God. It was us before Christ. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of... Are you coming? No. I can't do that anymore, guys. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They want to see evil. They want to see harm come to you. Peter says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Write this down. A godly life is convicting to the world. It's the light of Christ in a person that causes them to hate that light within us. Remember Jesus says, people that are in sin do not like the light and the more that you have the Beatitudes and the more that Christ is evident in your life, the more, without even trying, it just comes through and you don't even know why. But boy, it worked. That, that, that whole gang over there, they don't like me. I could just sense it. I have no, I, I, I want to reach out to them. I, I, I want to I be good to them. They don't like me. There's a reason. You're offensive to them. A godly life is convicting. I thought of some examples I want to share them with you. So I taught in a Christian school for 21 years. I've seen this first one play out many, many times. Others of you teachers, you've probably experienced it. Often, not often, most kids in the class have a resentment toward their classmate that works really, really hard and studies and does well on the test, so much so that they really screw up the curve. You know what I'm saying? 
Some of you can remember school. It was not that far back, and you're thinking, yes, I remember her name. Couldn't stand that girl. Like the 30 in the class, and all of us kind of had an unwritten rule. Let's make around here, and so-and-so, Mr. and Miss So-and-so, you got to give us the curve. Hey, that wasn't on the test. You didn't tell us that was on the test. That wasn't in the notes. It wasn't. You didn't talk about that. You didn't really cover that. Are you sure? Can I see your notes? Oh, and lo and behold, they're in her notes. Like, oh, you. Think about what you've done. You have resentment. And by the way, I'm not talking about skill and ability and giftedness in a certain field. I'm talking about if they were on a lie detector, could you have studied more? I had practice. Could you have? Yeah. Could you have done better? Yeah, could have done better. You're mad at her because she did her best and worked hard and studied, and now you're mad? That is really, really selfish. And she's ostracized. Why? Goody, goody. Messing us up. What'd she do? The right thing. Many of you live in, uh, work in a great environment, and you'll not be able to relate. Some of you will say, Jeff, I know exactly what you're describing. Do you know there are some work environments that have developed a whole culture and the culture is this, happens every week, foul language, kind of dirty talk, a lot of double meaning, a lot of innuendo, a lot of just filthy language, and it's very flirty. And that ends up leading to some inappropriate touching and patting and petting and pinching and brushing don't shake your head, but some of you are like, oh, I know exactly. That's where I work. It'll be there tomorrow morning. And there's this whole culture, and I know it's getting cracked down on more, but I want to tell you, when that's happening, and a person comes in and lets it be known with their reaction or their words or a look on their face or a slap, and a, don't you ever do that again, or a threat of I will report you, and like, whoa, what's, what's the matter with her? Man, don't do that with her. She's... I'm talking about an environment that leads to a lot of maritally unfaithful petting. And when somebody comes in and says, I'm not participating in that, then they get put in another group, and they're looked at as like, you're weird. You are weird. And then sometime later, when the people who do this start picking people for an assignment that if they do well, they get a promotion, you're not on that. I'm going to tell you what that's called. That is actually persecution. You're not in it because you're not part of our group. Other businesses have business people who really despise other business people being at the company. They literally, it would not hurt their feeling. I'll be glad when they're gone. I wish they'd get transferred. Why? They're goody-goody. Everything's by the book. They refuse to break the rules. They never cut corners. They're not willing to cheat. And any time it looks like we have done it, they always bring it up in the meeting and make us look bad. And we've done it for years. I just assume they get on out of here. It exists. But maybe one of the biggest ones is the one I'm about to tell you because it's gotten so much worse. Years ago, we would have said high school, but it's not high school. Sitting in our congregation right now are middle school and high school young people who if you, you know this to be true, guys, if you make it to middle school and you make it to high school and you do not have sex, it's called fornication. If you don't have sex, if you don't drink and get drunk, if you don't talk a certain way, take the Lord's name in vain, and, have, and, and express what the Bible calls corrupt communication, if you don't do that, you're looked down upon. You are not cool. It is the strangest dynamic. Those who are committing fornication and blasphemy and breaking the laws of the land and abusing their body and filthy, using filthy language, they're very bold and out there and they're trying to make those who are doing the right thing feel weird. On our college campuses, those who actually have the courage to declare and make it known that they really do believe in the Genesis account of creation, they're actually labeled as less intelligent than the rest of <laughs> You're stupid. 
Have you not? And well, this is what I believe. And, and they're taking, they know that and they know this and they hold to the Genesis account. Just weird. What is wrong with you? This is going to happen. Don't be like, oh, I can't believe this is happening, my kid. Expect it. Hey, hey, here's the question. You at the work, you at the plant, in that culture, young people, you in the school, here's the question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You, you, y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. You're going back in a few weeks. Sorry, you're going back in a few weeks. Will you cave? Is this the year that you cave? Or will you hold a line and say, you know what? They can say what they want. I won't be invited. That's fine. I'm going to live for the Lord. Verse number 12 back in Matthew 5. And again, you want to hold a spot in 1 Peter chapter 4. You definitely want to hold a spot there. Verse number 12 says, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution for righteousness' sake. I propose to you that almost as old as time is persecution for righteousness' sake. Almost. I'm not going to say persecution was there at the very beginning of time with Adam and Eve. But almost at the beginning of time, it began and it has not stopped since. It happened to the prophets. So let me give you just some samples of what Jesus is referring to, the Old Testament prophets. Here's one. Watch. Do you know the second person ever born? Remember his name? Adam was created. Eve was formed out of the side of Adam. Who was the first person who was born? First one born. What was his name? Starts with the C. Cain. Second one born was Abel. Just getting started in time, Abel experienced persecution. So much so that his older brother Cain killed him. What was Abel's big offense? All we know is this, he's more righteous than Cain. And Cain, rather than becoming righteous and offering righteous sacrifices like his brother Abel, his solution is, I'm going to kill Abel. Persecution. Joseph. Joseph is hated and despised by his brothers and sold into slavery. And all he did was declare prophetically the dreams that God showed him that involved his brothers and him. God gave him the dreams He declared them, they hate and despise him, sell him into slavery. He goes into slavery, he ends up being bought by a man with a title called Potiphar. And he rises in the ranks of Potiphar's house because Joseph's just such a good man and he's so smart and he has the hand of the Lord on him. He's running Potiphar's house and all of a sudden Potiphar's wife makes an advance toward Joseph. Joseph refuses to commit adultery and because of it she falsely accuses him. He's in jail because of righteousness. Say, you're going to put me in jail, that's fine. I will not commit sin against my Lord, and I will not be unfaithful with you against my master, Lord Potiphar. Moses didn't ask to lead the children of God. All he does is receive God's command to him, and he declares what God says, and he does and says the things that God says to do, and the children of Israel oppose him, persecute him. David, a prophet, is hated, and on multiple occasions, King Saul tries to kill David. What's David's big offense? He serves Saul faithfully. He has the blessing of God on him. When Saul serves himself and sins, then David has a heart after God. And so God says David is going to be the next king. And Saul resents him and tries on multiple occasions to kill David. For doing what? Being a man after God's own heart. Jeremiah is thrown into a pit. That's his prison. Why is this man in a prison? Because he's saying things we don't like. Prophets are looked at as what they say comes to pass. And so the people wanted Jeremiah say a different message. But his answer was, I can only say what God tells me to say. You say, what was his message? Hey, this whole Chaldean, this Babylonian captivity, it's going to last 70 years. We don't like that. You need to say that we're the children of Israel. We're the Hebrews. We're Abraham's descendants. This is just a little little blip on the screen. We're going to get out any time. You need to change your message. I can't. You're going into prison. Daniel thrown in a lion's den by the Persians. Why? Hurting nobody, his his offense, praying like he'd always prayed. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. Secondly, still in this first point, the fact and the cause of persecution is out of verse number 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. If you're writing this down, persecuted for 
Christ's sake. It's very obvious, persecuted for Christ's sake. Go with me again, if you would, back to 1 Peter. This time we're going to chapter 4, and we're skipping ahead from the verses we read previously. I want to read the next three verses, and we'll actually read these twice today. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse number 12. Persecuted for Christ's sake. Watch this. Peter again says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why is this happening? Why has God let this happen? And then he says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. But rejoice. Don't be surprised. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 14 again. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make a note. I just gave you these examples and Abel was the only one of that list I gave you of Old Testament prophets and of none of the things that I gave of our common experiences that we experience here in the United States, in school and in the workforce and various places. None of those led to death. Abel's did, but William, William Barclay writes the following. And in fact, let me say it this way. For the last 2,000 years, the most severe form of persecution has centered squarely on one group. There's, there's different kinds of persecution. Sometimes it's fun. This fan base persecutes that, that fan base, right? Ha ha, we got you. Okay, that's persecution. But the most severe form of persecution for the last 2,000 years has centered on those who exalt Christ. What I'm about to read to you, a quote from Barclay, is actual events. He says the following. The world knows of the Christians who were flung to the lions or burned at the stake. You've heard of that? You ever thought about that? It was a sport. Bring out more Christians. Bring out more lions. This is entertaining. Watch the lions go attack them. Put them in a close environment. I don't know if you've ever been at a zoo where you've been near a lion, especially when one that was upstanding, they're usually sleeping, but when they stand up, if you've ever been where one is roaring, I'll promise you something in you said, I am really glad I'm on this side of the fence. Barclay says the world knows of the Christians who were flung to the lions and burned at the stake. He says, but these were kindly deaths. What? These were kindly deaths. Everybody knows about those. Those were kindly deaths. What do you mean? Barclay, what are you saying? What he's saying is, comparatively, you would choose those over these. And then he writes the following. Real events, guys. Nero wrapped the Christians in pitch and set them alight and used them. A little different than burning at the stake. This would take longer, much more screaming, longer lasting. He says Nero wrapped the Christians in pitch and set them alight and used them as living torches to light his gardens. This guy was so twisted, he would no doubt stay awake at night thinking of ways to torment Christians. It says he sowed them, Christians, in the skins of wild animals and set his hunting dogs upon them to tear them to death. You're like, well, that's kind of like the lion. I'm telling you, I would choose being killed by a lion. You do have the terror of that, but the actual death of it is going to be real quick. They're going to hit you here, and the clamp of their jaw is going to snap your neck. They're going to stifle you out, and then they may proceed to eat you. This whole dog thing, they may start at you. You have been bit? Over and over and over. We grew up bear hunting, and so I've, we, we had dogs. And I've seen how dogs would go at a bear or a raccoon or whatever it was. And they're tearing into You don't want to be on the inside of that, experiencing that, slowly being killed. Barclay continues. And by the way, if these things, if you're one of those, I don't want anybody falling out on the floor this morning. So if you need to go to Myrtle Beach in your mind for a few minutes and go to a sunset or sunrise, whatever floats your boat, you need to do that. But Barclay continues, talking about Christians. He said, those were kindly deaths compared to these. He says, Christians were tortured on the rack. Feed me to the lions before put me on the rack. 
So Jeff, what's that mean? Arms tied, feet tied, put on a rack, and literally, or there. This would result in knees being dislocated, hips coming out of joint, shoulders. If this disturbs you too much, don't think about it. He says, molten lead was poured hissing upon them. Eyes were torn out. Parts of their body were cut off. Parts of the body cut off and roasted before their eyes. Seeing your own body being burned. Their hands and feet were burned while cold water was poured over them to lengthen the agony. Sick, sick stuff. Real events. I think, why? What's the story there? Why did this happen? Yes, Jesus predicted it. What's the cause of this? In their case, Barclay concludes, why so many Christians tortured by the Roman Empire? This is just one segment of persecution. Here it is. See, the Romans had a vast empire, and they needed something to unite everyone. And so as the years developed, what they found that would unite everyone is looking to the emperor. This is happening in North Korea today. So they look to the emperor, and they make him a god figure, and everyone needs to worship the emperor. So his quote is as follows. Barclay explains, quote, The worship of the emperor became not voluntary, but compulsory, mandatory. Once a year, a man had to go and burn a pinch of incense to the Godhead of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. Had to do it. By the way, if you did that, you get a piece of paper that shows that you've done it that year. You've got to do it again next year and again and again. If you do that, you're probably going to be okay. But then he, conclu- he continues. Barclay says, and that is precisely what Christians refuse to do. For to them, Jesus Christ was Lord. And to no man would they give that title which belonged to Christ. And I want to interject right here. What would you do if you were in that that situation? If our country said, you must say this person or that supposed God is the one true Lord, what would you do? If if you're faced with that, or you're going to be persecuted or lose your life or go through these tortures and punishments, maybe you're thinking, I think I would just say it, but in my heart know that I don't mean it. Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. Not an option. And so Barclay continues. He says, confronted with the choice, Caesar or Christ, they uncompromisingly chose Christ. They utterly refused to compromise. So the result was that, this is key, however good a man, however fine a citizen a Christian was, he was automatically an outlaw. So if you're sitting here thinking, but I'm me. I have a great personality. I'm really, really nice. I'm very, very skilled. I'll be kind and I'll show myself valuable and they'll let me live. He concludes this quote by saying, In the vast empire, Rome could not afford pockets of disloyalty. And that is exactly what every Christian congregation appeared to the Roman authorities to be. So there's no like, oh, you're in with somebody. No. Kill them all. Round them up. Lions. Rack. Burn at the stake. Got to have somebody lighting my garden. Kill them. Torture them first. And then killed. Did they say the word? Do they have the paper? No, they, these refused to do it. Bring them in. No questions. And that happened. Do you, do you understand? Millions. And that continues today. You said the Roman Empire finished out 1,600 years ago. Those same type persecutions continue every day let me give you some good news all right this blew my mind a year a little over a year ago when I sat right there and John Hutchison said what I'm about to say and I literally I thought that has to be a typo and I started running the numbers in my mind and so actually I got my phone out I think and and then I did it again this morning here's some good news this is exciting the good news is that it's estimated that 10,000 new Christians come to faith in Jesus Christ in China every day Isn't that good news? 10,000 Chinese coming to faith in Christ, they're going to go to heaven every day. 10,000. 10,000 a day. 10,000 yesterday. 10,000 tomorrow. That's the estimate. That's the average. And you're like, and you're probably like me, like that that has to be a typo. If you run it out, it ends up with 3.65 million people every year. And you're like, at at that rate, then they're going to like, well, yeah, I ran those numbers compared to 1.35 billion. And that 10,000 a day, you know what it averages out to every year? 0.003%. Run the numbers. 
1.35 billion. 10,000 a day is awesome, but on a yearly average, that's still only 0.003%. It's exciting. 10,000. We're not seeing that in America. 10,000 every day. And here's the difficult part. It is estimated that 100,000 Christians around the world, not talking about China, 100,000 Christians around the world die for their faith in Jesus Christ each year. And you're probably hearing that like, I don't, that can't be true. That's just not, I don't know anybody that's been killed for, right, we don't, we're in America. I get a little newsletter and, from Frontline Missions, and each month they'll have the name of somebody. The one this month went back to April of a couple of months ago, where in the little, small West African country of Burkina Faso, and I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly, back in April of this year, radical Muslims killed a pastor, 48-year-old Eli Zori, and some members of his congregation because they refused to recant that their faith is in Jesus Christ. They refused to move away and take back their confession of faith in Christ. And then shortly after that, same area, they also gave up another pastor, 80-year-old pastor, Pierre Adriego, and they gave him five days and his congregation to think about it, knowing what had happened over there to the 48-year-old pastor. You will recant, or the same thing will happen to him. Five days later, he refused to do it, and he and many in his congregation were killed. And on today, today, as you sit here right now, many in this little country who are Christians are fleeing for their lives. They're running for their lives. And this happens every day, every year. Every year, all the way back to what I read you a while ago about the Roman Empire. Yes, there is slander and there's lying and there's hatred and there's loss of property and there's loss of income and opportunity. All of those are real, but then you have these higher level. Jesus says it's going to happen. That leads us to our second point. Not only the fact and the cause of persecution, I told you it would be the longest on the first point, so here's the second, is the blessing of persecution. There's this blessing of persecution. Verse number 10 of Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There's this, guys, is that strange? You say, Jeff, you've kind of been going out a few minutes now. Our attention is kind of waning. I want to really encourage you, really lock in, because we've known most of the first of what we've said. I want to challenge you with what remains in today's message. When Jesus pronounces blessing, those are the blessed people. Those are the real fortunate people. Those people are in the good position. Those people have the good life. Now, it ended early, or it's about to end, but the good life belongs to the persecuted. Our mind says, Lord, what are you doing? How can you possibly say this? This is not the blessed stuff. We understand these beatitudes, and there's blessings attached to that. This can't be right. How can you do this? Jesus says the persecuted are the blessed because as the eternal Son of God, he, here's the key, we're in it. We're drowning in the moment. We're swallowing in pain and shame and death and fear. It's all, it's all around us. Christ steps back as the eternal Son of God. He sees the beginning of all things. He sees the ending culmination. I use that word loosely, the ending of all things. And the key is he sees the purpose. He sees all that's going to come out of that, both in this life, because that happened, that one became a Christian, and that one became a Christian, and this one over here, and then all the ramifications go to that, and he sees all the eternal. So Christ, as the eternal Son of God, sees things as they really, really are. And that's why he pronounces blessing. Listen to me. He pronounces blessing on the persecuted because he knows the kind of life that led to the persecution. What, what kind of life is it? Those who are poor in spirit. There, or th it is theirs that's the kingdom of God. The kind of life that leads to this persecution is the one that mourns over sin. They're going to be comforted. This way he can pronounce blessing. goes on and on down the list. Christ pronounces blessing because he knows theirs is the kingdom. They shall be comforted. It's okay. They inherit the earth. They'll be satisfied. They're going to be, receive mercy. When others are not receiving mercy from God, they will receive mercy. 
They alone shall see God. These are the ones that are going to be called the children of God. They're like Jesus when they become peacemakers. And because they're like Christ, they're the adopted children of God. They inherit everything God has. What Christ is saying is it's okay. I know the life that brought this on. They really are blessed even when they're persecuted. But verse 12 brings in another element. Verse 12. So what's this blessing? Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Persecuted. What about all these people, these 100,000 every year? What about all these insults and pain and shame and isolation? You're blessed because you have a great reward. There's one thing I've noticed about our society. I do it too. We use words. We throw them around way too loosely. I was almost going to say we do it all the time, but that would be me throwing a phrase around too loosely. We don't do it all the time. You say, like what words? That's the best. Like a little kid who's only known frozen Geno's pizza or school cafeteria pizza. This is the best pizza. Oh, really? In their world, it is. Or here's one. We throw these words. It's the greatest. Or that's awesome. That's awesome, dude. Or that's amazing. Is it amazing? Yeah, it's amazing. Do you know what amazing means? Amazing means I can't figure it out. Awesome means I can't even like speak. This thing is so wonderful. Well, no, it's not really that awesome, but it's awesome, dude. We just throw words. Jeff, where are you going? Jesus Christ knows all things. He never exaggerates. He always speaks the truth. And here's what he says of the, ble- of, of, of the persecuted people. They have great reward. Great reward. Not reward. Great reward. Ah. When Jesus makes this statement that the persecuted have great reward, that's an amazing statement. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, that causes my theology some problems. I read this, and I'm making my notes. I'm, I'm reading my 15 to 20 times. I've read it, Mark. Read it. Tally, Mark, read it, read it, tally, there's five times I've read it, and then I'm making my document, and that's why it ends up getting up to ten times, reading my document, and one of the things I noted is, great reward? Whoa, 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 Lord, what are you doing? Reward. You're like, Jeff, what's the problem? It's wonderful that Jesus promises there's this great reward to the persecuted, but when he uses the word reward, what he's saying is, by doing so, he's offering reward as a motivation to live for him and serve him. You're like, sure, yeah. That may not cause your theology some problems. I'm going to tell you that causes my theology some problems. And there's others of you in here, you're starting to track with me because your theology is like mine. You're like, Jeff, what are you hitting at? Jesus is saying that reward is a legitimate motivation to live for him. Still not tracking, Jeff. What's the problem? Here's the problem. The Bible, what does the Bible emphasize about mankind? Of ourselves, we are depraved. There's nothing good in us. Left to ourselves, we're always going to go the wrong way. There's nothing good in us. Anything good that we ever end up doing is God in us. So the Bible emphasizes the depravity of man. And it also emphasizes the grace of God. How do you get saved? God has to give it to you. All you do is take it. And then you start becoming sanctified and living more like Christ. Yes, you do that. But ultimately, it is Christ that is making those results. It is his grace that is enabling you. You serve God by serving people. How? He gives you these spiritual gifts that he gave to you. He gives you the ability to do it. He opens up the doors of opportunity. He causes the fruit. So all along, it's, like, it's God, it's God, it's God. It's not us. Us. We're depraved. And here comes Jesus and talks about a reward. Lord, that's, that's you got the wrong word. And then like, Jeff, he didn't study. He's not misquoted. This is the right word. And then I read some commentaries and I find that others struggled with it. MacArthur offers the following. He says, talking about the word reward, he says that is one of the motives that God gives for serving him. Follow here, track. He says, first of all, we first of all, first serve and obey Christ because we love him. Yes, yes, that's what I teach the people at Graceview. But MacArthur says, we first of all serve and obey Christ because we love him. Just as on earth, Christ served and obeyed the Father because he loved him. 
But, talking about Christ, it was also because of the joy that was set before him that Christ himself endured the cross, despising the shame. Talking about Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2. Christ despised the shame of the cross, but he endured the cross. What was the motivation? Because he loved the Father, and it was the Father's will, and so he's going to obey. That is true, but there's also for the joy. Literally, the writer of Hebrews says there's this other motivation. That's the main one, but there's this motivation of for the joy that was set before. Christ gets something out of this too. The Father is pleased. I want to make you happy because I love you, but Christ knows I get something. And so MacArthur concludes here what the portion I'm going to give you by saying, so Christian will hear this, it is neither selfish nor unscriptural to do the Lord's work for a motive that he himself gives and has followed. Jesus gives permission. So write this down. Let's make a point. We are to primarily serve and obey Christ because we love him, primarily because we love him. But enduring persecution that results from a godly life brings with it an eternal reward. And what Christ is saying is, let that motivate you. He literally says, for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. And so before we look at the last point, I want to throw this out to you very quickly. You're sitting here this morning, you say, Jeff, we don't really have a lot of persecution. Sounds like really bad times around the world. I'm really glad we don't because I don't want it. Okay. If it comes, I want to get out of it. I want to avoid persecution. Listen to me. I'm talking to Christians. You can avoid persecution. I'm going to tell you three ways. You're like, this isn't the outline? I like this pastor. He's getting ready to tell us three ways to avoid persecution. I'm going to tell you three ways. Number one, really tone down Christ in your life. Tone it down. Starting to get persecuted, insulted, people talking about you. It's getting a little painful. Tone down Christ. They'll leave you alone. Secondly, assimilate to the world. Act like them. Spend your time like them. Invest all your energies. Love what they love. Be just like the world. They'll leave you alone. Maybe you're sitting here saying, Jeff, I can't do that. I have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want a holy life. Praise the Lord. Third way, you can avoid persecution. Here it is. Become a holy hermit. Go be holy. Be holy and grow in your righteousness. Read your Bible and pray. But stay at the house. Like fix it where you never have to leave the house. Except maybe to go to the grocery store, but you don't even need to do that now. Now they'll bring the groceries to the house. Only leave the house. Like keep the gates closed. Never step into anyone's life. Never come between people who are having conflict or never try to lead anyone to Christ. Never, don't become a, a minister of reconciliation. Just kind of stay to yourself, have your prayer and your Bible study and you got all your answers and only come out when it's safe on Sunday and meet with people who believe just like you and then hurry back to the house. They won't bother you. You won't have persecution. I promise you. You'll be good. So is that what you're promoting? Well, I want to be honest. I'm going to tell you something. Your reward in heaven will be less. Oh, okay, that's fine. I don't mean it. Careful. Really consider this thought. Because the choice is obvious. Do you want more here? More comfort, more pleasure, more toys? You need to think about this. It's my job to make us think about this. I have to think about it too. Do you want more here and less there? Or less here and more there when it matters more and when it lasts a lot longer? What do you want? There's a blessing on those who are persecuted. And then that takes me to the last thought this morning is the proper response to persecution. The proper response to persecution. Verse number 12, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad. Did everybody see that? Listen to me. That little phrase, man, I hope you'll dial in here. This is the part that spoke the most to me. That little phrase is a whole lot stronger than we think it is. You say, Jeff, what's this mean? 
As I read, multiple people helped me to discover that this rejoice and be glad, it's not just like repetitive. It means to rejoice to the point of leaping. Have you ever like something so excited that you just, without even thinking about it, you're like, yeah! Go to a football game and just watch, or watch it on TV and watch the stadium, and they'll do this sometimes, and they'll show when the big catch is made without even trying or being prompted. There is no like, hit, hit the stand and go crazy sign. Stand and go crazy. Hey, look, stand and go crazy. What? They don't do that. They stand back, big catch, whole stadium. I've done it. A few years ago, I'm watching the Beijing Olympics. It was late at night. I was watching it live, and lo and behold, that joker, Phelps, came back in the last second and touched the wall, and as soon as it did, I popped up. Deanna, bless her heart, was asleep in the bed. I'm like, woo! Michael Phelps, baby! I was excited. I didn't get out of bed, but I kind of, literally my legs kept, my arms went up. Jesus says, when you are persecuted, yes, yes. What? That's foreign. We are not going to do that. To not do this is disobedience. It is disobedient to not rejoice and be glad when shame, but it's shame and it's pain and death. Jesus says rejoice and be glad to the point of leaping when it comes. He says the strangest things. When it's for my sake, do it. Now if you're like me, here's what you're thinking. Jeff, okay. Leap. Shame, pain, it hurts. Death, I can't do that. I can't just like, maybe I'll try it. Yay, see Lord, I, I, I rejoice, see. You say, I can't mean it. Hang with me. I won't mean it. It's about faith. Right, he'll be with me through it. That is true. Listen, it's about faith. It's always about faith. It's always about faith. That's why I'm going to make this statement. We can rejoice and be glad amid persecution. You say, Jeff, that's not how you have it in the note. I know. Write it down. Go home and dwell on this in light of this verse. I'll promise you this statement is true. We can and will be glad amid persecution to the degree that we believe Jesus' promise of great reward. If I honestly in my heart believe it is great reward when I'm persecuted, then when it comes, if I really believe Jesus, then I will, not only I can, I will genuinely be glad on the inside and it may show itself on the outside. I told you we would read 1 Peter twice. Go there one last time. We're going to look. You want to go there this time. I actually want to put you to the test. There is one word that is an amazing word. Now, Jeff, you, there you go throwing the word around. No, this is an amazing word. I've never seen this before until this week. Just saw it in a translation. And then I looked at it in what we're reading here in the ESV, and it doesn't, it's not that clear in the ESV. I saw it in something else, and this is like, Whoa. I'm going to reread verses, chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. I want you to see, can you spot the, uh, by the way, there's a lot of amazing words. But there's one particular I want to highlight as we come down the home stretch. Here it is. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And some of you are thinking, I know Jeff, it's the word glory. That is a great word. That's not the word I'm highlighting. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Jeff, what's the word? Look at verse 13. This is amazing. Peter says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. It's the word in so far. 
Okay, what's so great? The word insofar means to the degree. Rejoice. Listen, Christian. Rejoice insofar. Rejoice to the degree that you share Christ's sufferings. To the degree that you share his sufferings, that's how much you rejoice. What Peter is saying is, what he's implying, our blessing that he talks about in verse number 14 is literally connected and proportionate to the level and amount and severity of the suffering that we have with Christ. Literally what he's saying is your blessing is in proportion to the kind of persecution and suffering. And so what he's really saying is your rejoicing should be in proportion to your blessing and your blessing is in proportion to your suffering. And so what he's saying is if it's more extreme and more persecution then exalt more than if you had less suffering. Rejoice in so much as you are suffering with Christ to the degree that you are suffering the sufferings of Christ. And so you hear that and you say, I know Jeff's next point. Go out and be obnoxious and create persecution. No, don't do that. We are not being called to stir up persecution. Here's your last note. If God counts you worthy, say, Jeff, I'm such and such years old. I've been saved for such and such amount of time. I've never experienced anything what you've read earlier as William Barclay was talking. Listen to me. If God counts you worthy to suffer in greater ways for Christ than you ever have before, in greater ways for His glory, then exalt, exalt all the more. If He gives greater suffering, greater persecution, the Lord's count me worthy for more, then exalt all the more. Young people, I want to ask you, what has your faith ever cost you? Adults, what has your faith ever cost you? Young people, adults, what are you willing to give up in this life to have more in the next life? What are you willing? For decades and decades, and I can talk about the last basic four decades. I've been saved 40 years. Those that are older than me know this to be true. For, pa for, for, for decades, pastors have said what I'm about to say. Here it comes. I'm not a prophecy preacher. It's not my gift as in declaring and prophesying future events. But I, I'm, I'm going to add my name to the list of pastors. Here it comes. A severer kind of persecution is coming for Christians in America. Been saying it for decades. Never has it rang more true than now. And I'm not trying, I'm just trying to be dramatic. It's coming. I promise you. You see it. If you read... Right is being called wrong and wrong is being called right. Never has it rang more true. It's coming. Jeff, what should we do? I'm, I'm, I'm honest. I say this today. I hope I'll mean this when it comes. What should we do? Thank God for it. God, yes. Thank you, Lord. It's going to be hard. Why would we do that? I'm going to tell you right now. It will purge us. What do you mean? Our attendance is going to go down when it comes. That's good. We're going to be more pure. Some sitting here today, when it starts costing, you're checking out, man. You're going to be a holy hermit. I'm not saying you've lost your salvation. I'm just saying you're going inside the castle. I'm laying low. I'm not coming on real strong for Christ. Man, our words are costly now. It means something. They're like putting people in prison. They're taking their stuff. They're taking their jobs. They're losing. Everything's being lost. They're killing those people. Count me out. Oh, yeah, it's going to purge us. I'll tell you what else, though. It is going to drive us to Christ. And you mark what I'm about to say. You older ones, you're not going to see it. I'm sorry. You younger ones, you young, I'm telling you, it's your generation. This is coming. More people will be saved in the United States when the persecution comes because the church is lukewarm. This church is filled with people that haven't talked to people about their soul in years. But when persecution comes, our words will mean more and you will be declaring the truth and we'll be like China. By the tens of thousands, they'll be coming to Christ when the persecution comes. It's going to be awesome. That guy's a nut. That guy is a nut. Nut. 
Persecution is an opportunity to show the value of Christ. And so when our words have a cost, it means more. Here's my last thought. I really mean it. And I'm going to pray. We're not singing. I'm going to pray. And we're going to go. Because this isn't a come forward. Lord, let it begin with me. (laughs) Very important statement. A more severe kind of persecution is coming for Christians in America. But here's the good news. But our reward in heaven will be greater than without it. That's what I've gleaned this week. I said, what? Our reward will be greater. Now, I love that some of you are thinkers and you haven't checked out because you're right now thinking, okay, hold on. Severe persecution's coming, and because of that and how we respond to it with rejoicing, our reward will be greater through eternity. This will be a little memory, a little dot through eternity. Well, Jeff, hold on. If that's true, since that's true, then aren't we missing out? And here's the last thought. Aren't we missing out? Hasn't God, like, put us in a bad place and these 100,000 every year, they're like, They've got it better than us for eternity. They have an advantage. I'm going to propose this to you. Heard it from Colin Smith. Though blessed with great freedom, and by the way, that's a great gift. Don't get me wrong. Though blessed with great freedom in our time, we, you, can still have greater eternal reward. But we have peace. It's not costly. We could still have greater eternal reward by choosing to sacrifice. Jeff, what's, what's your point? Die to self daily. Jeff, what's your point? If they are not yet taking it from us by force, and thus the greater reward, what if we just offer it to God freely now without it having to be taken by force? Go and sacrifice. God, I'll give you me. I'll give you everything I have. I'm going to invest in your kingdom. My time, my energies, my opportunities, money. And that bulletin down there is calling for another $1,000. If we got a hold of this concept that I'm closing with, that'd be gone before this day is over. Like, what? I don't have to. No, they're not, they're not raiding your account. But if we understood, okay, God's put me in a position, I don't have to. But what if I sacrificially have the same result and I give even till it hurts? On the authority of Jesus Christ and his reputation is at stake, I'll promise you, you live that way, you'll not regret it. This is our week to prepare for next week in Kentucky. It's going to come in. You want to be part of it? You have an opportunity to talk to that person about Christ while it's today. Got an opportunity to sacrifice. Hey, young people, you're going to cave? Or are you going to say, uh-uh, bring it on. I'll be different. Say what you will, it's fine. I'll be isolated now, so I'll be with him later. It's good. Let's pray. Father, drive this deep in us, Lord. I just want grace for you to be what you want it to be. I just want to be what you want me to be. So, Lord, when it comes... In greater ways, may we rejoice and be glad to the point of leaping because it's like Paul who just seemed to invite and delight in persecution. What strange reaction. Lord, let us really believe what Jesus said and what Peter said. Let us live like it.